to the It's All Opinion podcast. This is episode five. I am your host, Nate Sperlin. Welcome to the only podcast where it's just straight facts. And if it's not facts, I guess it's an opinion. Thank you for listening or watching. Well, thank you for watching on YouTube or listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or other DSPs that I won't name. It's like mad DSPs. It's like so much to get into. I really don't want to. Um, also, do us a favor, hit the like button and subscribe to the YouTube page or her Spotify page or Apple Podcast page or whatever DSP page is the way that you're listening to this. Um, and obviously follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Old Milk Media. I am here with the fifth guest in this series. Um, one of the only three reasons why I care about the Boston Celtics, uh, Bobby Manning. <laughs> Bobby, you care? I didn't know you cared. Oh, yeah. I mean, I care because I want the claps to come so I can be insufferable in the group chat. Oh, all right. this has been <laughs> your plan. I think you and Lindo, you've been dead quiet in our group chat for weeks now because they've won 19 to 25 and you're waiting for the collapse. But I don't see it. I don't see how anyone's going to solve this defense. They found the cheat code and they're going to be dangerous. And I was in a dark place like many early January. I, I'm not going to lie. Adjustments. I'm not going to lie. The one thing that's hilarious is that it's I need with the Celtics. I need a middle ground because they can't be too good or else you guys are insufferable, but they can't be too bad or else you guys don't say anything. Like I need them to be like around maybe like 550 or something. Like I think that's the perfect sweet spot <laughs> for um, our conversations in the group chat. Well, it's on it's on a hundred now. You are gonna hear finals predictions from me, which is which is saying something. And I said in my other group chat that went over the Grizzlies Thursday and there's gonna be obscene, but that was a take your pants off kind of win. That was oh that was so type of win. What is that? Take your pants off, start spinning it around. It's (laughs) it's party time. That was that was electric what they did against Memphis there on Thursday. Uh, that was that was great. And that was a prove it win. I mean, those are the two hottest teams in the NBA right now, the Grizzlies and the Celtics and the Celtics kind of handled them. You got it. You're impressed, aren't you, Nate? Um, I was kind of impressed. I think that the one thing about the first half was that Jaw just wasn't attacking. And I understand that it's part it's credit to your defense because you have whoever's on jaw is giving him that cushion to force him to shoot. And it seemed like he was determined to prove them wrong. Like, no, you should guard this. I can shoot but it just wasn't falling and he kept taking those shots anyway. Um, But I think that the one thing that Josh should have done, like any explosive player in the league who really can't shoot, like when you look at LeBron in Miami before when they used to give him that cushion is just attack, get to the line and see it go through the, uh, go through the net a couple of times before you start shooting those threes. And I think that that's probably the reason why they lost. Um, Charles Barkley after the game said that it was a bad performance from, uh, John Morant just based on how he attacked the game. And I agree with that. He wasn't sharp and he carries a heavy load for sure. I mean, they have some guys there. Desmond Bain's pretty good. Dylan Brooks have obviously been missing for a while, but he is carrying that load like enough to make you say that he could be an MVP candidate. He's somewhere on this mountain that we keep building here and changing names week in and week out. He He's there. I mean, that was the quietest 38 I've ever seen in Boston. And he had no makes in the first quarter when he was jacking those shots, like you said. So that was super impressive. I also think what's cool with him is he 
is starting to get like ovations and respect in every single arena he goes to. I know that doesn't happen in Boston often where guys introduce in starting lineups. Normally a good guys introduce, they get booed there, but it was a pretty loud applause for him in the garden. And like the place was packed just to see what he was going to do. Like the reaction to that left-handed throwdown he had was unreal. And then he was on the break when he dropped the ball a few quarters later and everyone was just like gasping, ready to see what he was going to do there. And he was even coming away smiling because he's putting on a show right now. I mean, that's what this is all about when they're looking for a new face of the league. He's got what it takes. Giannis certainly has what it takes. There's a lot of good candidates for it. They're trying to put Zion on. It's not happening. They Have you noticed... And I think I point, I forgot, I think I pointed this out uh, in the group chat like yesterday. Have you noticed that ever since they did that new um, Zach Levine Mountain Dew commercial with, I think it's Charlie Day in it too? We have not oh. seen the Zion Williamson. And it makes uh, me miss that one because this one's annoying as hell. It's bad. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, the, the, the point of it, I guess, is like, um, for like, I guess it's like more so like, oh, yo, like, look at all this subliminal advertising we could do. And I guess in terms of concept, they definitely get the job done. But I definitely agree with you. I think that it is. No, it's catching my attention every time. Yeah, but no, it's like, get old fast. it is well done, though. Um, But we can obviously talk about basketball forever. So let's actually talk about you. Um, I, I we're friends and I talk about this all the time, too. Like, it, like, we're all friends in this group chat and we barely know anything about each other. <laughs> which is hilarious to me. So the first question is simply, can you talk about your upbringing and also your first interaction with the sport of basketball? Ooh, so I always play a little bit of basketball, obviously, because I'm on the taller side. Not something you would know about, Nate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to throw that in there. But uh, I wasn't great growing up. And I, I probably enjoyed playing baseball more. I liked baseball more. When I was young, me and my uncle used to go to the games over at Fenway. We'd watch a bunch of Red Sox. It was a fun sport back then. A lot of personalities. And that's what I think we're all attracted to with basketball now is like the storylines and the people. And that's certainly like me as a writer and media person. There's a lot to unpack there that makes it very appealing. And baseball had that about 10, 15 years ago. And it's it seeped away. I know it's going to be like nine years now since the Red Sox won in 2013, which was really like the last year before last year that I was all into. And um, that group just had so many personalities like Shane Victorino. Uh, Ellsbury was great. Pedroia Ortiz certainly was yeah. larger than life. Miss him so much. And there's no one really to fill that gap anymore. So baseball, it obviously got slow. Uh, like monotonous with the style that they're obviously fighting over right now, trying to figure out. And a bunch of other things. I mean, you get busy, you get older, you don't have time to watch that full game unless you're going. And basketball, I got the chance to go to a lot of Celtics games during that year after Paul Pierce and Garnett got traded because the tickets were like 13 bucks max. You could go up to the window and just grab them. And then you move up because there were open seats way up front because they were playing Chris Humphreys and Courtney Lee and Marshawn Brooks. And I think they had like 30 players that year that came in and out and Rondo was hurt. It was bad. So they were obviously one of the worst teams in the league. But you got to go see the Warriors during that first year when they were really getting it going and uh, all these other great teams like the Cavs and Kyrie Irving. I remember going to watch back then and I went to like 15, 20 games that year. So I was interested in getting in the media around that time. Obviously the Celtics were one of the teams I was into. They weren't the team, but I had accessibility to the stadium. And I started talking to a lot of 
media types there who, you know, the media area is kind of like right in the low seating area there. So I got to meet a lot of people going to those games. I obviously got to be up close, tweeting about it a lot, connecting with people. I was tweeting about the games and that's sort of what made me fall in love with the NBA is that it was just so accessible. Like Fenway's expensive. It's hard. You go to like one, maybe two Red Sox games a year. Bruins, wicked expensive. Um, Patriots is like obviously off the charts. So I was able to go to a lot of the Celtics games and that kind of made me feel close to them and really got me into the NBA as a whole because we saw a lot of the other great teams that were out there that year. Yeah, for sure. Um, That actually kind of a lot of questions that I thought of uh, – kind of touched on that um I could think just to go in chronological order so um what is can you talk about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be that you wanted to pursue uh reporting on sports like for real it was probably the fact that I got to cover my high school football team and I obviously knew like a lot of people there I was a pretty shy guy when I got to high school like first year I didn't really have like a lot going on for me I didn't, I wasn't great at sports, obviously. I did a little track when I got a, got in there, but um, that like kind of gave me an identity there. Um, starting like late my sophomore year, but really early my junior year, I decided to like do my own beat covering the football team. And I was writing for a blog about Boston sports back then. And, you know, opportunities were hard to come by. I was trying to like get in and cover some of the big teams and, you know, there obviously weren't opportunities to do that and maybe write with some of the big papers around. They weren't really having it. So I just started doing stuff on my own, tweeting a lot, certainly. Uh, then that first year that I got to write about the football team there, they were amazing. And we didn't have a great football team. So they were like a big surprise. It was one kid at running back. His name was Doug Santos, who had like a historic year for the high school. And he really like changed the culture in the room and stuff like that. And it was, you know, a coach who adopted him. He was a guy from Brazil who, you know, was living in different cities around Boston, eventually landed in Peabody there. And him and the coach were pretty tight. And they sort of revamped the team there. And it was a great story, uh, good personalities on that team. Obviously, I was the only one, like, covering them. So I could just go and talk to, like, 10, 15 people after the games, which isn't really the case with, like, professional sports. You know, it's very limited and you know, you only get a few minutes with the guys and stuff. And it's all like very scripted a lot of the times. I mean, these were people my age that I knew that I had a connection with. And it sort of gave me like a new level of confidence going out there and making that happen on my own. And it was a lot of fun. I spent a lot of Friday nights going to those games. They were fun games. A lot of them were like back and forth right down the wire. And, the, you know, they were in the running with some of the best teams in the state, like Everett and, uh, you know, Zavarian, I think it was called. And, some of these other like big time football powers and mass, they were never there like the last 10, 20 years before that. But I got to kind of cover those two years that they really were. And senior year was pretty cool too. Cause he came back. He had an even better year with the worst team around him, Santos. And uh, they made like another improbable run, like the second round of the playoffs, just a couple wins short of the Super Bowl. So those were really fun experiences. They really appreciated the coverage that I gave them, which, um, which felt good. And, uh, you know, like I won a couple of words doing it. People read it around the school, which I thought was awesome. So that's like where I really decided, like, all right, I can do this. Um, it's just going to be a, a case of opportunity. And certainly, like, I was doing all that Celtic stuff I talked about at the same time. And eventually, like, a couple of different opportunities came up to write about them as well, um, especially Celtics blog late my senior year I got involved with. And that was really when, like, things started rolling in the Syracuse. So 
what advice would you have for someone who is just now trying to, first of all, figure out if reporting is for them in the first place? And secondly, um, once they do uh, decide that reporting is for them, like how to get into, uh, how to get their foot in the door? I think uh, just doing it, you know, it's, it's easy to do it now. You know, you just go out there and start a blog and, you know, I think a lot of different newspapers and stuff around, if you're young, like you'll be able to get in there and like pick up some assignments and stuff and start young. Like that was a big advantage for me, I think, is that like I was so young and I was so far away when I got started that a lot of like the older people that I met were willing to like mentor me and give advice and become friends. I think that gets tougher when you're further along, I've noticed. And that's still something I'm trying to like restart is like forming those mentorships and connections and relationships and stuff because you're kind of in the flow of things when you get going and you know you don't really always make time for that it's very easy when you get nothing going on at the beginning to like make as many connections as you can there so that's number one and then in terms of if it's for you I, I think people have said this to me when they've like complimented my work is just like how the consistency like I'm doing it day in and day out I'm writing about like every single game obviously there's like a day in day out thing you can see like the passion i got in the group chat there that like i'm just firing things off at all hours like you gotta you gotta make it your passion because for most people there's not a lot of money in it there's there's long hours like you're working almost every day of the week and it's late at night so those are all things you got to be like ready for. It's not like a normal job where it's going to be very scripted and you, you know, you get your time off and you know, all the different like benefits of normal jobs. It's a little strange and you almost have to kind of make it your personality and passion, which I found a pretty easy job doing. If not like the downsides of the industry are really going to get to you. So you have to be able to kind of push those aside, have like a good level of, confidence because a lot of people are going to say no to you especially early on too so you got to be ready to deal with that that still happens to me a lot and I'd say the other thing is that you just have to enjoy doing it because it can be a grind especially writing which is kind of my thing even though I've gotten into a lot of other mediums like it's just kind of you sitting there with the computer screen you feel this probably Nate too you know as a guy who writes like it can be a battle sometimes to really get that going and when you really don't feel like it you have to force yourself through and get it done and you know if you have a level of pride with it you're going to be nitpicking it and really like going at it for hours like I was up almost all night last night writing and uh, like I it can get tough you can get tired you definitely have to take some breaks and you know like really care for yourself with uh, a lot of the things that go on in media but if it's what you really want to do you have like a really easy time going with it and I think you'll feel that pretty early on when you're trying it like I've even at Syracuse, I saw a lot of people who were like interested in it, but weren't all the way in. And you could tell that they didn't have a lot of success for it with it because it wasn't like them. So um, that actually brings me. OK, so that actually takes me out of order a little bit because you brought up writing. Um, I just want to um, what is one of the most underrated challenges in writing about basketball, do you think? Probably not being cliche, I'd say like. There's a lot of like buzzwords and stuff that people use and for like a lot of, I'd say like narratives too, that people just end up catching on to and saying the same stuff one after another. Like, I think being fresh is tough in the basketball lane because everybody's talking about it. Everybody's got like these ideas of what's right and what's wrong. And 
what's going on and what's happening and to stand out in that lane is hard. And I still battle with that. Like what's going to make me unique on a Celtics beat where there's like dozens and dozens of people covering this team, either in the room or around the world or blogging. Like I'd say there's probably over a hundred people covering the Celtics at least uh, in a variety of different ways, podcasts, videos, streams, articles blogs like it's it's probably one of the most covered teams there is in sports so that's tough and i've found ways to do it but that's still something like i'm trying to answer right now in my first year like really going all in on this is how are you going to be unique like what are you bringing to the table that other people aren't there's a lot of people like doing a great job with stats now that's sort of my thing as well but you know there's some people that do that really well even better than me so I try to hone in around like the personalities and the people. And that's been tough during the pandemic because you don't get a lot of time with them. But I've been able to do a few pieces, especially during the off season that like really shine lights on like the personal sides of these people. And that's a hard thing to do. So I always try to go toward like the more difficult things because I know there's going to be less of a crowd there, like getting after family members, meeting them, um, you know, doing the tough, deep interviews with like people who knew them early in their lives and doing a lot of interviews. You know, a lot of people have a hesitancy to pick up the phone. And I feel that too. Like that's one of the hardest things about this industry is like calling strangers and really making like deep bonds with strangers. And, uh, you know, I, I actually give Syracuse some credit for that because I had a wicked hard class where you had to go out on the street in Syracuse and like really meet the people. And like one of them was like me and like opioid addicts and that was tough, like going over to like the rehab and like meeting those people and like, you know, trying to like get their trust and like get them to talk to you and stuff like that's hard, especially for a guy who's like kind of naturally shy, like me, a very anxious guy like me. Um, that's like the hardest part of this by far is um, breaking out of your like comfort zone, because that's the only way you're going to stand out, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it like to have frequent conversations with athletes like I'm like you posted I think it was like a two-year anniversary of you talking to Carmelo Anthony and reminiscing with him about South Campus at Syracuse University so what is that like to have those frequent conversations and have those relationships with for example uh I know that sometimes you uh have questions for the Celtics players so being able to talk to Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown or even Rob Williams like what is that like it definitely takes down the allure of them because obviously this whole, this whole like TV product and marketing and all the kind of stuff that builds these guys up is larger than life. But even just like walking by them in the hallway, it's, it definitely like takes down that like mountaintop that these guys are standing on. And a lot of them are pretty humble guys. Like Tatum's a super humble guy um, when it comes to like his background and even just his lifestyle and persona now I'd say is like very low key and obviously he's got his son he's just kind of like this uh, old soul dad who's only 24 and has like you know this 30 million dollar contract and a nice car but you know he's he's just sort of that same guy who was balling in St. Louis and you know he's doing it at a higher level now and trying to make it like one of the greats and all the different guys that he looked up to I wrote about that last week like how this driving force behind him definitely seems to be like the Kobe's and the Durant's and these guys that he really idolized growing up Uh, so it's kind of cool to get into like their backgrounds like I I find all of these guys backgrounds so interesting like we talked about Derek White like he comes here and his dad was a Celtics fan who grew up in Boston it's like whoa that's that's crazy they ended up here and Al Horford obviously behind me there like that's 
a guy coming from DR, which just like doesn't happen in the NBA and becoming one of the great big men in the game is super cool story. Like even this Ukraine thing, like this thing's going on now and there's two NBA players from Ukraine. Like who, who knew that? And Shvi Michalik and Alex Len, like the, the different, like the international angle of the game and just like the array of stories that these guys have coming up, uh, you know, whether it's Dennis Rodman and the, like the community college story and him growing there, like all that height there, Giannis and Greece, that story is just insane. Like there's just countless amazing stories, whether it's like the stars or the back end guys who are barely hanging on. And I think that gap's kind of cool too, because there definitely is within same locker rooms there's a LeBron and there's an Austin Reeves who's just trying to make it. And those guys are working together on the court at the same time and trying to gel with each other. And they're just drastically different lifestyles and personalities and people. And that makes this all endlessly coverable. I mean, there's just something going on every day with this league and it never ends, which is great. I mean, I can't even imagine covering baseball 162 days where there's not a lot going on. There's not a lot of, stories really you know it's 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 my favorite part about this is the people and that's what i'm trying to hone in on like i said it's difficult i think the like pr like team shield that gets put up makes that tough to do you obviously can't even really get to know these guys and talk to them face to face a lot of the time now i'm on zoom most of the time like 90 percent. so that definitely limits the connections that you can make but a couple of years ago i got to talk to taco for like 10 minutes about his background and coming from Africa and the work he went back to do there, which was super cool. And that's like, that's my passion and all of this. I don't really, I, I care about the games. I care about like the debates and I care about the stats and all that different kind of stuff. Cause it's what people care about, but I care about like those stories. Like there are some amazing stories there. And I still think of like a lot that I really want to do that. I have like this massive list I'm trying to check off and it's tough, but that's like my driving force in this. Do you mind sharing some of the things on that list? Chris Duarte is one for sure. I mean, he's another guy who came from DR. Uh, He's 24 as a rookie. Uh, He went to like this weird school in Massachusetts and had to learn English and started basketball pretty late in high school. And now he's like one of the best rookies with the Pacers there. He's got a pretty incredible story that I think is already out there, but probably has more layers than people know about. So I'm excited to work on that. I kind of want to talk to Horford too about that because that's a guy I think he idolized. They came from the same city there in DR. Um, who else am I trying to write about? I kind of want to do like a career retrospective on Horford too. Cause I think the way his games evolved over the years has been pretty cool going back to the Hawks and now being this guy who has had to recreate himself several times. Um, what else? Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that I have kicking around for sure. Um, but those are two big ones that I'm working on right now. Uh, is there anything else off the top? The draft's always an interesting thing you look ahead to. I think there's some really interesting guys in the draft coming up. But yeah, those are the big ones for sure. Um, Nick Stauskas just came back to the Celtics. Two years, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's insane. I, I think I saw, um, it's funny, over the past two um, weeks, I saw that he's been having big games in G League. Um, even Isaiah Thomas just got signed in Charlotte for 10 days because he was having some big games in the G League too. 
that was a great story in the middle of the year when all those guys were getting scooped up on those 10 days. Like Joe Johnson came back to the Celtics. Uh, you had Lance Stevenson, who's been with the Pacers all year. That was like the craziest thing ever when you had all those replacement players. It was like the replacement refs in the NFL that year. Yeah. Not really, but, <laughs> it was but you had some crazy – you had some crazy there. starting lineups out there during that time. Like it was the Hawks had like four replacement players alongside young at one point. It was nuts. So um, we talked about your, your, uh, your place in NBA media, but just like as an overall, when you sit back and you look at the uh, landscape of NBA media, what do you, what do you think about it? What do you think about the current state of NBA media right now? Well, the first thing I think about is um, the the players. And I think there's been a lot of incidents over the last month or so here. And it's become so easy, I think, for teams and players to say, oh, the media, oh, the, you know, the Nets were doing it with the whole Harden debacle. And obviously the media was right about what was going on there. And, you know, Russ having his back and forth with the reporter there in L.A. And I sort of just roll my eyes at a lot of it. It's an easy target. It's been going on as long as time. I think it's always easy to blame the media for a lot of stuff. But at the same time, like the media does get a step up in its own right. Like I was just even thinking about um, earlier the ball sack sports thing. We're always laughing about there. And when you do get into it, a couple of people were talking on the Twitter line today that it actually is kind of a cool uh, like experiment and just like the flashiness and like the instant the quote that you see across Twitter and you don't even really think about what it is. And it just sort of reinforces what your mind state is on something. I think that's something that the, the uh, media has to do better with, especially around basketball is actually, you know, doing the homework. And I think some of the question asking is terrible in these press conference settings. It's hard. You know, I've probably asked some terrible questions myself, but a lot of it's just so like basic and vague. In fact, the question that Russ got asked there about like, what was your expectation or like, how does this compare? Did this go as you expected? Right. Like that mm -hmm. was the question. Like that's a terrible question. And it's just a lot of it's done to either like show off or get your viral moment as like the interviewer there in the room. And there's not a great, I understand the thinking behind that. If you're a reporter or you're in the media and you're trying to like get your moment there and generate some content but it's not really going to be yours i mean a lot of the time when i'm in those settings like i'm trying to get a quote that really hits was, a lot of the time you're really trying to get like a one-on-one -on -one quote that really hits so no one else has it and when something like that happens you just end up looking like an ass i remember um the finals when lebron got up and walked away after the guy kept asking about like the jr smith running away situation and like it was so obvious what the guy was trying to do there. I think the media does have to be a lot better in a lot of different circumstances um, about just like being prepared um, asking better questions, like stepping up to the plate. Like this is the pros. This is the NBA. Like these are, these are like the top of their game guys. And they're smart. Like they know how to answer questions. They know when it's BS. They know when it's like, uh, like when guys are get, trying to get at something divisive or something like that, or just like get a headline or get like a clickbait quote there. And when guys are really trying to do something real, I mean, when I got a uh, mellow in the locker room there, you mentioned that one, I went up to him. It was in Orlando in the room when you could do that, which was, you know, I only got to do a handful of times before the pandemic. And I basically said like, Hey, you got a few minutes to talk about Syracuse. And like no one else there was asking about that. They were asking about like his three point percentage or, like how he's fitting in with the trailblazers back then, or just like the game he had, which just like come fire and fire and away. You got something unique and you got some homework. 
that you've done and questions that you've prepared and background research that you've done. Like I always point to Nadwar and those interviews he does, like that's the peak of interviewing, right? Like you got all the background info. You've talked to all these different people who know these guys and you, you know what you're going to, you know, you're going to bring something that surprises and impresses them. And that's going to make them in turn walk into what you're doing and be, um, be more engaged in your question though. You know, these guys get asked like 10, 15 questions a day it's a lot of it's nonsense. So if you bring some nonsense, they're just going to blow it off in your face too. It's funny because when you were talking about the concept of some media members uh, trying to get that viral moment, I instantly thought back to, um, I forgot what year it was exactly, but it was the year of Hurricane Harvey and when uh, Houston was being flooded and stuff like that. And there was one reporter specifically asking Draymond Green. So uh, essentially the question goes like, so you guys didn't play well in game three because, and you guys didn't make threes. Okay, whatever. And then game four, there's a flood. And then you guys are making threes. Is there any, like, and it was like, why is, are you, tr- like, how are you possibly trying to make these two things a correlating thing? Like people are out there losing And that was the houses. finals. That was yeah, the finals, right? I'm, I'm honestly yep. not sure. It, it was be- the playoffs. Yeah, it was definitely the playoffs though. I know that. I don't know if it was the year that they that the Rockets lost in the second round or the year that the Rockets lost in the Western Conference Finals, but it was definitely one of those two years. And it was just yeah. like, and Draymond's like, dude, I know what you're trying to do. Stop asking me that. Like, I know you're trying to get a controversial statement out of me and it's not going to happen. Stop talking to me. Like moments like those, or even um, when Chris Paul was on the Clippers, someone asks, uh, is there going to be a game seven? And he's like, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, am I supposed to say, oh, it's over guys. Come on. Like, you know, like, it's it goes to your point of NBA players know bullshit from a real question and in within that media members do need to be better with asking questions because also at the same time it could be times where players are being asked the same exact question 15 different types of types of ways and it's like you have nothing else to talk about really guys so I definitely agree with you there um that's yeah, I like <laughs> I'm trying to think this year. Like Emay's gotten asked like ten different times about the back to back games in the same city. Like, oh, do you like this? And it's like, come on, you've been here all season and you know that's been asked like five times. And we have such a limited time with these guys now too. That does get frustrating. And to your point about the Harvey question, like it definitely comes out most when the cameras are on. And that's when you can tell it's really BS that like they know it's on NBA TV, the people who are asking a lot of this stuff. And in those moments, they're definitely trying to like get their face out there and have that moment that they can fire off on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is. Like they're in the flow of the regular season. You're probably not going to be on camera a lot. I think I was like once this year asking a question and like that was just kind of like timing. Uh, so the playoffs, there's a lot more people in there, people that haven't been there all year swooping in. It's good to be there and kind of have a feel for like what's been asked, what the storylines are, um, the familiarity with the people. Like, you know who my favorite person to interview is, especially in a press conference setting? Doc Rivers by far. His personality just like takes over the room. I was in Philly a couple of weeks ago. And I haven't gotten to be like in person at the pressers a lot this year, but on the road, you get the chance to a lot of the time. And when he comes in, like the whole room's just at attention. It was a packed room, obviously, because the Harden Simmons 
deal just got pulled off and it was Harden's uh, first game there against Boston. And like the way he just like engages with the people from Boston who like he knew from his days back there, he's like, Hey Gary in the back of the room. I went on a zoom once. I don't even know doc. Like I didn't cover the 08 team. And like, he's like, you know, Bobby, I forget what I asked, but like, he just like called me by my name and like just went on and on. And I asked a Harden question that day too, that I got a great answer from say what you want about doc, the coach, that guy just, and this, I think has earned him a lot of like um, leeway in his career when he's had some not so great finishes is that he is just a people person to the T and he makes you feel good no matter who it is. And I remember the stories in Boston of like him with the janitors and like him with the workers in the arena. And like, he'd just be on a first name basis with everybody. And that's a great feeling. He is a guy that I would have loved to have covered as a coach, but I like Emei a lot too. I think Emei has got like a confidence and like a no BS um, willingness to speak his mind. That's really good because the coach is often like what you're going to get the most stuff from because the players don't love talking, you know, they're just trying to get in there and get out. The coach is oftentimes doing like a lot of the messaging, the, um, like uh subliminals thrown at his own team or officials or whatever it's going to be like a lot of the time the story is coming from the coach so you want a coach who's going to interact and be forthright brad got a little tricky with brad at the end he was really getting tight to the vest eight years in and that's going to happen this is just Emay's first year i'm sure he's not even going to say the starting lineup in a couple of years so last question um centered around you if you weren't writing about basketball or talking about basketball or doing anything related to sports at all, what would you be doing? Probably politics um, or like economics. That was sort of like the other thing I was into in school. Uh, Obviously just like social issues. I'm super into um, like uh, stuff happening in city. Like I, I could very easily cover news and I'd love to. Uh, just like normal news with like a magazine or something like that. And there's a variety of different areas I'd be interested in. Obviously I love music, music um, media is interesting. I it's, it's weird to me. Cause, and like, that's obviously your thing. Like you, we, all the different stuff I talk about with access that doesn't really exist in the music world. Like you kind of have to like carve those relationships at yourself. And it's hard. Cause I think uh, for big music stars, like a lot of the press, handles itself so they don't always feel the need to go out there and do a lot of interviews like the biggest music stars don't do interviews at all mm-hmm. like uh beyonce and uh i know bruno mars and the weekend i remember around the super bowl i like, gave like his first interview ever uh, in front of like a crowd of reporters so that's gotta be tough i feel like and there's obviously like a lot of opinion as we talk about opinion here that can go into it and like uh reviews are big and Uh, like a lot of different ways you can go with music but for me like getting to know the people and like telling the inside story that looks really hard on the music side and I'd like to try it one day for sure but I don't know if I'd be up to the task it looks tough yeah for sure um it's a lot of uh PR people and it's a lot of middlemen in between yeah and that's Um, how sports is getting too unfortunately yeah um all right so let's get controversial a little bit how much do you like Rudy Gobert I like him and you know I'm I'm not contrarian, but I like to take the side of people who I think get bashed a lot. Like the numbers just speak for themselves. You look at the MVP chart. He's always up there every single year. The analytics on his defense say it's one of the best ever just from how he prevents people going to the paint. And he gets unfairly bashed as like a failure each and every year when the three past years, they've been one of the best teams in the NBA 
which matters to me. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's all about championships, but you're one of the best teams in the NBA year in and year, and you have a fan base that can have a really fun year and get to the second round. You obviously you want to get to the conference finals like they've been unable to, but he's doing his part in all of that. And I feel like it's other guys on that team who need to step up in the front office that's been very complacent at least the past few years in terms of getting like perimeter defense around them. It's all collapsed this year. I mean, they lost by 34 to the Pelicans the other night. That was bad. They've had a few losses like that this year. And listen, speaking of like the murmurings around a team, you definitely get a sense that him and Mitchell aren't really on the same page, which is probably a problem. And you don't know where that franchise is going to go over the next couple of years here. And they signed him a ridiculous deal too, which I will give you. That's crazy money. for yeah, like, That is insane. Like it, my, my issue with Rudy Gobert is not rim protection. If there's someone that just stand in front of the rim and protect the rim, he's one of the few players I'll pick. But in terms of overall, because there's so much more to defense than just rim protection. So, like, for example, when you look at a Bam Adebayo, who can also kind of protect the rim and also goes on the perimeter, that's about more valuable to me than someone who's just going to protect the rim, you know? Like, I think that defensive player of the year is a award that is very much built on eye test and very much built on who are you guarding but he wins it yeah but like i don't think he necessarily deserves it half the time if i'm being why do you think he wins it though because his stats are up through the roof and people Mm -hmm. are just being lazy and people nba media isn't um watching the games they aren't considering players like a drew holiday for example or players that um like I remember I forgot what podcast it was but on the pod I think it's JJ Reddick's podcast actually and JJ Reddick will ask players superstar players who is the one player that is the hardest to score on and routinely players would say Drew Holiday Drew Holiday Drew Holiday he doesn't get any type of look in terms of defensive player of the year and I think that if players are saying this dude is the dude I do not want to score on because it's going to be so hard he has to get some type of look don't you think yeah, I agree. The The award's always been biased toward bigs, but if we're just comparing them to the other bigs, I think there's a floor that he gives a team that almost nobody else does. And I understand why he gets disrespect from players because, you know, they're trying to go at it with the perimeter guys. And all of a sudden the big ass dudes inside just like get ready to swoop over and swat the ball away. Like it looks so easy and effortless, but the way he's been able to do it is built historic results. And I find that so impressive. And like people just kind of brush it off because he gets dunked on one time and they have a bad playoff loss and it looks like he's to blame. And the whole package of the year matters to me and what he's doing from day one through the very end to get them there. It's pretty impressive to me. Now, Mitchell's a big part of it too. I mean, the last 10 games I saw, yeah, they're in two when he plays, he's scoring 27 points a game. He's the engine there, mm-hmm. um, but there's a rock too. And that rocks go bare. You see them die when he goes out of there too. And that's why I think he's a real MVP candidate. I mean, their defensive system would just collapse without him out there. And that matters to me. I'm a big defense guy and I don't think a lot of fans are. That's another reason he gets a lot of disrespect. It's a guy scoring 13 points a game, taking shots at the basket. And they're like, oh, what's so great about that? Uh, There's a high level of defense that he's playing out there that I think even if you're watching the game, you can be impressed with. And listen, everybody does a different job with different teams. Like Bam's not as good of a shot blocker as Rudy. You know, he's not as big. He's not as long. He can switch out to the perimeter, which is a big advantage for him. But the Jazz, if they're going to play the way they wanted with him, they got to get some perimeter defenders and... I was stunned they didn't go get a Harrison Barnes or Jeremy Grant. They got Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who's not even playing. Wait, did they I mean, really? See, I didn't even know that. Like, 
that shows how small of a deal that is. They don't do anything. And they got Danny. Danny's supposed to be swinging big deals and throwing picks around. And no, that's not what he did at the end in Boston. Either. I want <laughs> to say, like, you, you, come on. You, you, know. <laughs> you definitely know. So, that. what's the point? They're definitely paying him big money. And he goes out there and gets Alexander Walker. And the only reason they did that is because Joe Ingles got her and they had to use his contract. Oh, my God. I mean, I also, going back to rumors and mumblings, I heard that. Um, Something along the lines of the minute that the Jazz stopped being competitive, Donovan Mitchell's out. What do you think about that? What, what was that? The minute that the Jazz stopped being competitive, Donovan Mitchell's out. Oh, so he's going to try to leave. Um, yeah, I could see it, right? It's probably not great living in Salt Lake City, you know, doing what he's doing. He's definitely been understated as one of the stars and faces of the game. And sometimes your geography hinders you in that regard. Been on national TV a lot. Uh, they've definitely had some really disappointing finishes in the playoffs. And if the personalities aren't working, I could definitely see that he's, he's one of those guys though, that stands to make a ton of money by sticking it out there for a little while longer though. And I do think guys seen with Bradley Beal and what Damian Lillard's doing right now, they're going to try to be a little more patient just to get that guaranteed money locked in, make some decisions from there. And, you know, I think what's underrated, you know, we talk about like, oh, is Jason Tatum going to look to leave Boston one day? And, you know, who's going to try to make the next super team? I think we see this with Russ this year, too. There's a greater trade off, I think, happening between do you want to play on a super team and become the Kevin Love or the Chris Bosch? Or do you want to kind of have your own setup, your own team, your own city? And I think that is getting really appealing to a lot of guys, uh, like the fact that they can kind of run their own world if they're the guy on their team. And that's something obviously Tatum has in Boston. Um, Mitchell, we'll see. I don't like there's obviously a Rudy factor there, too. Is it his team or is it Rudy's? And it's, I'm it's sure totally like Mitchell's team. Yeah, but there's that competing interest there and that competing big personality in the room with the $34 million deal. So that gets a little tougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, that conversation happens a lot with Brown and Tatum too, but I think that's been sorted out and they're more conciliatory and on the same page. And so that's able to work out better. But at the same time, if Brown gets to a point in a couple of years where there's an opportunity for him to go do his own thing, especially as a brand and as a player and a guy who missed the All-Star game this year, probably just because he was on a fairly disappointing team and the same team as Tatum that's something that I think uh, happens a lot and that could definitely happen to Mitchell you know it's it's all about what the opportunity is for him to jump to like no one's going to New York remember Stan Van Gundy said that last week <laughs> like no one's going to New yeah, York no. and they're holding that hope where else are people going to like what's the next great destination for guys Miami's always out there Clippers Clippers are the Clippers are a really 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 well run franchise like in the yeah. past five to ten years ever since they got rid of their previous owner donald sterling they are really really good franchise yeah they got their guys though you know there's always room for one more but it can be hard to fit three in there without killing the rest of the depth and that's the other thing now too like the big threes they've turned the big twos mm-hmm. uh most places unless like one of your stars on a rookie deal like minnesota uh, so yeah most teams are just going to be rolling with their two guys and even miami it's it's jimmy and bam show there and i don't know what that's going to turn into because Lindo said it pretty well last week. Like, there's just no expectations there. Like, they've been great. They've been gritty. Now they're the one seed. Are there going to be expectations now? Or if they lose round one or round two, is it going to be a disappointment? I'll give them some leeway because obviously they had that great finals run a couple of years ago. But people are just super satisfied with the heat. And yeah. I don't <laughs> – I think that 
a second round exit for them will be okay. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't be shocked if they make the finals either because they're a very, it's just culture. Like, if you ask all the top five teams in the East right now, would you want to play Miami aside from Miami? Because obviously Miami's number one. They probably say no because they just know that it's just going to be a battle every single time. Well, Boston learned that for sure a couple of years ago. Yeah. My, Milwaukee has too. And to be honest, they probably might again if they face each other. Um, I'll probably take Milwaukee, uh, uh, Miami over Milwaukee in that series if I'm being they honest. They got swept last year. I mean, they weren't healthy. <laughs> lots, of, lots of COVID lots of injuries around but i think that a full a full a fully healthy miami team is a team that could definitely play spoiler for some teams i think that i think the wall is still alive too like i I think we're shifting to milwaukee talking about milwaukee a little bit but i think the wall is still alive i think that um if Giannis is still put in front of a wall he's starting to make some jump shots now and i'm seeing that and i'm like okay he starts to do that, then I'll start entertaining him possibly being the best player in the league. But if he's just going to still be trying to run into people and all he can do is lay up or dunk, then it's like, you got to give me more on offense. There. Well, you seen last night as we record this, he was just bumping through guys and the Bulls, they're getting some guys back that can stand in front of him a little bit. They try to throw Tristan Thompson in there and he just went robo arm and threw it down in his face. There's, there's a lot of resistance you can throw in front of him. They still able to break through there. And there's just a sheer will too. that heat game where uh, he got the jump ball and I know Spolster wasn't happy about that the lack of a foul call there but that's the kind of play Giannis makes and this is why I love him like he is so much more energetic and willing to put his nose in things than other stars like there's an energy level that he plays with that most of the other guys who are coasting just aren't willing to show like LeBron and him like you compare those two LeBron kind of puts it in neutral for a little while Giannis, he's always full speed ahead, and he's willing to do a lot on defense that most stars aren't. Uh, he's he's like Rudy-esque on the defensive end in terms of his rim protection, and meanwhile, he's putting 30 points and five and assists out there a lot of nights. Yeah, so this guy, like, I think he's checked all the boxes. Last playoff run, that was the most invigorating thing I've ever seen, and he had a lot of doubters out there like you, mm-hmm. Harden. I thought it was pretty fitting that Harden just was stumbling around out there, losing to him after all the trash he talked. I mean, at the same time, kind of unstoppable. Was, I mean, at the same time, Harden was injured, though. Like, let's yes. not erase that. Like, well, listen, you're going to talk all that trash, and then your time comes. Oh, you came up a little lame with the hamstring there. I think yeah, there I mean, it's not, like, it's not like Harden's fault is like, it's not like Harden was like, yo, I'm going to have a hamstring right now, and then that's why we're going to lose, and then nobody can blame me for it. Well, it's just, we know Harden wasn't in the best shape. We've been over this. <laughs> definitely. I mean, I think at least go, at least last year, because of the short turnaround from the year previously when the Lakers won the title, I think that it just put so many players just in general at risk for at a higher risk for injury. And some guys are looking exhausted. Yeah. Like even like, even like, let's just stay on James Harden for a little bit. Can you like, there's never really been a time where James Harden was hurt in Houston. If he had all that rest, all the, um, the usual rest between from season to season, there was never really a time when he's hurt. There is no, but he was he was putting in big minutes and he was putting in all those games and you saw it with Kemba there after Charlotte run he like just crumbled after he went to the Celtics because he was never resting he was just mm-hmm. going full speed ahead there and there is 
I think uh, I think guys like LeBron and Kawhi who get a lot of crap for the games they sit out in the load management, there's a benefit to it that I think everybody's got to buy into a little bit. And I think the league has to take a little bit in terms of how it builds its schedule and in the future because it's losing some stars just based on the guys who are willing to put on the uniform every night and play the big minutes when we know it's not conducive to having a long-term healthy sustainable career it's you know especially when I think there was a story written a couple years ago I might have been in ESPN that uh the kids even like AAU kids are just playing so many games Mm -hmm. so many minutes putting such stress on their knees that that's even shortening guys like into their careers and there's not like a big emphasis on rest and recovery in the sport and there needs to be because it's just such a physically demanding sport, especially for the stars who are doing everything on both ends and playing the big minutes. And we've seen a lot of really tragic injury concerns over the last couple of years. And I do worry about Giannis a little bit. I worry about Ja just from the style that he plays with. Ja is great because Ja will do anything. Ja will yeah. get in the air for anything. And it's because he's, he's very skinny. He doesn't really have much cushion as he falls and just, some of those falls, I do take a step back and I'm like, my, my breath is taken away. And I'm like, is like, there's a rose factor with him. Yeah. Like, really worries you. like, is it, is, is this the one where he might be out for 20 games and then it starts something else? Like, so I definitely agree with you. I think another point that I do want to um, kind of piggyback on that you talked about was the AAU factor too. And, Cause I remember um, listening to all the former greats of the games, like the Isaiah Thomases or the Michael Jordans, they would always say, "When basketball season is over, I did not play basketball. I did not play basketball until basketball started mm, again." That's what it and was. And that's too. them um, talking about their time in high school or even in middle school, or even if they did they even play competitively in uh, middle school. Like, so it's just the the constant jumping up and down, up and down for. 10 years before you even get to the NBA in the first place definitely plays a factor in how quickly the body breaks down. Yeah. And there's a notion too, that cross training helps with your recovery and your ability to stay healthy and all those different things. That's always been something that's been out there. And so you you play football season and you move into basketball season, it's different muscles. And then maybe you go and play baseball in the spring. Like that's something that I think at least for a while people thought was helpful and uh, conducive to being in the best shape you can be and recovering the right way instead of just playing basketball year round and putting the same forces on those same muscles. I remember um, Javante Green, who plays for the Bulls now, when he was with the Celtics, I wrote a story about him. And, you know, he was a football star. Football was his thing. He was a guy who was across multiple different sports, track as well, I believe. And so a guy with a more well-rounded career, um, he did end up having some injuries from playing football and different things. But I think he even mentioned the benefits of, uh, just doing different sports and focusing on different areas of your athletic um, athletic uh, regimen can have good benefits in terms of how you develop. And he's certainly a guy who has a great athletic repertoire and with how he dunks and gets up there and runs the floor. And uh, some guys wear down. You know, we've seen it with Zion. There's other concerns there, certainly. Um, some guys, Porzingis, there's a height thing there with him, but the injuries in the game today just kind of feel out of control. And it's hard to not look at the schedule, uh, the upbringing, the specialization, because I don't know, we weren't around like the 90s and 80s, but and guys were playing through more than two, which had its own issues. But 
it didn't seem like guys were just always hurt like they are now and missing massive time. And these stars with the knee tears, like half the league right now in terms of the stars are out at any given time, it feels like. Additionally, I think that the NBA should, because I remember last season, they didn't plan the second half of the season until after the All-Star break. I think that that's something that they definitely need to look at too, because I mean, while we did get a good game last night with Phoenix and New York, we got really lucky because that could have easily been a 30-point blowout. And there's just so many nights now where you're trying, you want to sit down and you want to watch some national TV basketball, and it's unwatchable because by halftime, the game's decided. And guys are missing. Yeah, like, and it's for the early game and the late game. So it's like, tonight we have, um, because we're recording this on Saturday, tonight we have the Warriors and the Lakers playing tonight. I don't want to watch that. Like, genuinely, I don't want to watch that. I love Russell Westbrook. I love LeBron. I bet you want some laughs. Yeah, like, <laughs> and you're not laughing. It's not, yeah, like I, like, I don't want to really watch that. And be, and it's because of the fact that also on the other I side. I want to watch that for other reasons. <laughs> oh, yeah, because you're a Celtics fan. And that, <laughs> I'm sure that brings you so much joy. But not only the, that, they're just so funny. Oh, that that video where Russ and uh, who was it, Trevor Reza and LeBron are arguing with the crowd. I mean, they are just straight comedy and it is, it is hilarious. And the fans agony every single night on Twitter in those spaces. I've never seen a funnier thing than this Lakers team. And we knew we had, we knew it had comedy potential with the personalities that were being put together there, but we thought it would be good. And instead it has been a disaster. Uh, I got a question for you. Okay. Who's a bigger disaster this year, the Lakers or the Nets? The Nets for sure. Really? That surprises me. Because the Lakers, in the words of Charles Barkley, you put all those geezers together and you expect (laughs) them to win anything. It's it's kind of a tough ask. That was LeBron. And we've seen LeBron do the almost impossible many times before. So that's the only reason why I was really putting any stock into them having a finals run because it's LeBron James, one of the best players, the second, at least the second best top two player of all time, period. But on the other side, with the Brooklyn Nets, you got rid of Landry Shamit, who was spacing for Javon Carter, who you ultimately cut. You have Bruce Brown there already. You bring in DeAndre Bembry, another guy who basically does what Bruce Brown does. That makes no sense at all. That, there's no versatility on the roster. You have James Harden and KD there. Sure, Kyrie's not playing because he's not taking the vaccine or whatever. Cool. But at the same time, James Harden and Kevin Durant should be enough to still wreck the league. And watching those games and understanding that the spacing is such an issue that Kevin Durant sure is scoring over two people every time. James Harden is on the floor. Kevin Durant should never have to score over two people. But just the fact that they can help off of a Bruce Brown or they can help off of a Blake Griffin or they can help off of a LaMarcus Aldridge because they know no matter what, they're not going to knock down that three is very important. So ultimately, James Harden forcing himself out of Philadelphia, I think that says more about Brooklyn than it says about James Harden because the fact of the matter is, is that going into the season, they didn't put the guys around him, around him or KD. Because when you look at, when you go back and look at James Harden's successful years in Houston, there's so much space in that paint. There was so much space. He, James Harden could probably get a three second violation just dribbling in the paint because nobody can help off of Eric Gordon. You can't help off of Daniel House. You can't help off of Chris Paul when he was there. You can't. You can't do that. You can't help off PJ Tucker in the prim on um in the corner, excuse me. And just the fact that James Harden and Kevin Durant, every time they even take one single dribble in the paint, there's two people there. Well, this parallels between all the three teams we just mentioned there. And 
I think the single line between them is you had major player influence in the personnel decisions in all those spots. Uh, the Nets, from the day Kyrie and uh, Durant arrived, were pretty much set that they were going to be trading Allen, who's now an all-star, and Bring, um DeAndre Jordan, too. was Bringing DeAndre Jordan yeah. in, pushing that coach out the door, who's a pretty good coach, having Steve Nash in there, basically just holding the clipboard. You know, no knock on Steve Nash. I just don't think he was cut out for the job in terms of preparation and coaching and having a career. Yeah, so so none of that stuff worked. They had to dump Jordan, and Jordan was basically just there on a pretty big deal because Mm. the other guys wanted them. And so that cuts into your cap. You got three stars after you consolidate and put Harden in there. So you have even less room to spend on the rest of the roster. And it's all these minimum guys, Blake on his last legs. They got like those two weeks out of him where he was looking good at Detroit. Uh, Aldrich with all the health concerns he has and like everything is just kind of failed from a personnel perspective there because of basically following the whims of the players there and then Kyrie not showing up after all of it I thought was pretty shameful after all the leeway that they gave him the past year and all the personnel decisions that he got to have a hand in certainly and then the Rockets same deal like you talk about the great roster that was around them credit to Maury that was his whole thing there and then all of a sudden Harden ships Chris Paul out of there and they end up uh, with Russ and doesn't look as hot and then he does the wall he pulls the wall trigger and all of a sudden he's looking out the door too and that was even worse than Russ so LeBron dictating the rush trade like these guys who just go in there and start like pulling all the different strings instead of leaving it to the front office it doesn't go well Like, I don't think that's ever gone well with a team. And all three of those teams are paying the price, none more than the Rockets, who are just in pieces on the floor. Like, they aren't even a basketball team right now. I mean, I think think the Lakers are paying the bigger bigger price. The AD trade... Because they had the most to lose, right? Yeah, like, the AD trade worked out. They got a ring, sure. But LeBron wasn't there for one ring. He was there for multiple. And when we're judging it based on that and the high standards of what it takes to be one of the top two players of all time um, for him to, cause I think he's going back to Cleveland. I don't think he's staying in Los Angeles. And also I said this too, we got to deliver the bad news to window. <laughs> seeing how the magic Johnson, how magic Johnson being pushed out the door happened. The fact that Rob Palenka did nothing at the trade deadline at all. Jeannie, apparently Frank Vogel's game plans are being called from upstairs by Kurt Rambis, somebody who the only reason why I've heard of him before is because he was one of the Knicks failures at head coach. Um, Just all of it, just for such a storied franchise. I think that the Knicks might, I mean, not the Knicks, excuse me. I think that the Lakers might be up there with the Knicks for fumbling the bag consistently. You're one of the most storied franchises in the NBA. One of the most storied franchises in history of any type of sport whatsoever probably only up there with what like the yankees and i guess maybe the patriots the giants whatever um and you can't want to check free agents anymore because everyone see it looks over there and sees that it's a dumpster fire no matter who's on the roster because you have again one of the best players we've ever seen on the roster and you can't get you can't get anybody all you can get they is got people. Ariza and they got people a washed up Carmelo Anthony, no disrespect, but Melo isn't, it's not New York Knicks Melo. But how are you going to do better than that when you bring in Russ at 40 million? You don't have the money. You but got you Kendrick can... Nunn. <laughs> I mean, but you can still put pieces around him. Like, for example, like, 
the thing that I like that um, Miami used to do is they used to get players who were they used to get players for less and sign them to they'll still give them some money but at the same time they would their contribution would be way more than what they're being paid same thing with golden state uh with kevin durant at times um even cleveland when they won that ring or like when they were consistently going to the playoffs year after year there was always that guy that's he deserves to be paid more but he's there because he wants that ring and on the lakers that's just not a thing at all like why not try to get a uh, Tony Snell, for example? Like, I understand that he's a good defender. He can also shoot. That would help out a lot. Uh, even uh, Garrison Matthews, like someone who doesn't get paid as much as probably, it's not a minimum guy, but it's still closer to the minimum than a max type of guy who can also space the floor and shoot threes and knock them down. Like, where is the creativity? And yeah. You got to get lucky. You got to get lucky for sharing the heat have a lot of times, like they've been the gold standard with that, but not a lot of teams do that. Usually those guys are coming from your draft picks and the way they signaled all their moves screwed them from a compensation standpoint with that Davis trade. I mean, the Pelicans, like it's tough to say because the Lakers won the ring and that carries a lot of weight and that matters. Like you'll trade anything for one ring, but man, did the Pelicans score Mm -hmm. Ingram ball, Hart, who's really good, and now they flip for CJ. All these picks. Kuzma. Oh, we know Kuzma's yeah. still on the team. I'm all in. They, they, got, Val- yeah. they got Valanchunas with mm-hmm. one of those Lakers picks. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, they pulled off a swindle with that deal in terms of just ripping all the depth away from the Lakers. And that's kind of the danger of consolidating now is that the prices are so high. Um, you know, the Celtics even just did it with Derek White. They had to give up two first there, which is pretty high for Derek White, but it you got to do it to go get those guys now. Like that's the going rate is giving up all these picks and it kills your flexibility, especially when you're consolidating your roster around two or even three very high paid guys. And we talk about the big two versus the big three. The good thing about the big two is you get some more leeway for in LA Clippers case, like a Marcus Morris on a mid-level deal. Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson's making medium money. Um, Isaiah Hartenstein. Uh, Zubak has been amazing. Like you have great role players. And you look at the Nets and the Lakers, it's three guys and everything else. And the everything else has been a whole lot of junk. And it, that's what you got to expect. And you know what? The Lakers, they actually got a lot of good guys. Like you think of Carmelo Anthony on a minimum, Dwight on a minimum, Rondo, who basically want to bomb out of there, which should tell you all you need to know about the room there. Ariza, like you don't love any of those guys, but in terms of veteran minimum, that's probably the best you can do. And it's probably going to get worse next year unless they do that rust the wall trade. No, even the, the, the wall trade isn't going to do anything to make it better. I think that they need to. But why not try? Because John Wall and Russell Westbrook are essentially the same player, if we're really being honest. Like John Wall also struggles with his jump shot. So if the thinking behind that is to do it so that John Wall spaces the floor better, he doesn't. Yeah, but Russ does a lot of goofy stuff. I mean, Russ isn't, Russ is put in a situation where he's not allowed to be him. They literally broke him. I I sent, I sent in the um, chat, I believe either this morning or yesterday when uh, James Worthy was on Spectrum Sportsnet and he was saying, I don't like Russ seeing, I don't like seeing Russ with no turnovers because it means (laughs) that he's not being aggressive. Well, he was aggressive earlier in the season and you didn't like that either. So Pick a be consistent. What do you? I want mean, they're so they're so lost that they're looking for anything to figure out what's going on there because it is just off the rails. But Russ, listen, I'll I'll even put my personal distaste for him aside because I just I don't love his game at all. I never really have. 
he never fit with LeBron. I was trying to imagine it preseason because I didn't think this was going to be a disaster. Like I was trying to think of the ways that it might work, but I was like, I got to see this because you just can't imagine how LeBron and Russ playing together is going to work. Like you still can't try to think of some adjustments there. And it's like, Oh, maybe Russ will roll or something, or he'll cut off the ball or LeBron will catch and shoot some threes. And Russ says like that stuff just isn't going to happen. It never was. And so for LeBron to look at that as a basketball genius, a really smart evaluator of the game, how he looked at a couple of guys around him in Kuzma and Pope and, you know, even Harold was solid for them last year, even though he was not on the title team, how he would just dump all that out the window for a guy who there was really no path to playing together with that. Uh, it's still stunning to me. And it's going to go down as one of the worst mistakes in NBA history because they had a championship core and now it is, gone like they have no chance of ever getting back to the finals I mean I think the one I think the reasoning behind that was because last season when LeBron is off the floor there's no point guard there's Mm -hmm. nobody who's going to there's no way for them to score at all if LeBron's on the floor they can score but if LeBron's off the floor there's no way and I think the reasoning behind getting Russell Westbrook was here's a guy who's led the league in assists many times who's one of the best point guards we've ever seen and let's put the ball in his hands and let's have him run the second unit and also um, just dictate our offense. Now it kind of hurts when Frank Vogel knows nothing about offense in the first place. And he doesn't know how to make that work because Davis was shooting 13% from three. Yeah. Uh, Like it, it it doesn't like as much as you want to say, okay, well, or people want to say that the rush trade is bad. You have to look at everything around it. And the fact that, Russ was never put in a situation to be successful in the first place. He still, they have uh, Malik Monk and Austin Reeves bringing the ball up instead of Russell Westbrook. He literally led the league in assists last year and you don't want to put the ball in his hands. I understand the concerns about high turnovers or whatever, but at the same time, giving him that power and understanding how in a locker room, he can energize guys around him. If he is allowed to be himself and essentially saying, we don't want you to be yourself. And now you're wondering why, the team has no energy, why they can't sustain runs, why they have moments where they go on when they're um, the victims of 30 to six runs in the middle of the third quarter to the Los Angeles Clippers without Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. You're wondering why it's because the guy who was supposed to um, establish that culture of we're going to be high energy and we're going to play with pace. You took the ball to his hands and you took away whatever uh, credentials um, the team is looking for him to do. Well, you got to defend. If you're going to do all that, you got to defend. And they're two guys they just don't. LeBron, he hasn't defended at a high level in a long time. Russ, like Ethan, you got to admit, he is a bad defender. He is. He doesn't play with commitment on that end. He doesn't play positionally sound. He wanders and he gets lost. And if you're not piling up stops, how are you going to play fast and run out and play transition basketball they get lit up every night and that's where i give davis some leeway he's glass but when he's out there they're much better defensively no they are for sure i think that davis the the one thing about davis is not his ability at all and the reason why i personally don't think he's ever gonna be a top five player again has nothing to do with his ability it's literally just can he stay on the floor and for the past two seasons and even in uh, new orleans before he even won that ring um in los angeles he couldn't stay on the floor. And as some people say, the best ability is availability. And more times than not, Davis doesn't have that. And you can tell where he's going with the way they're playing now. I mean, they are packing it up. They're done. 
And like you said, I, I had a feeling a long time ago there'd be a LeBron bounce here. And the way he's playing right now, looks like he's kind of thrown in the towel on this. And I don't know, is there going to be a demand for like his GM to come in? Is there going to be a fight with ownership over that? They seem pretty committed to Palenka. I don't know why. And if, well, just a lot of loyalty, I think, you know, they got their people there. They want the franchise to stay intact. And let's be real. The Cavs took a little bit of a similar stand when LeBron was heading out of there. You want to make even more moves than they did in 2018, giving up extra picks and such. And they said no. And that was the end of LeBron in Cleveland. And will it be Cleveland again this time? I think there's a good case for that. I think there's a good trade that these two teams could make for LeBron sending some stuff back that the Cavs aren't necessarily using right now. And all of a sudden the East would be even scarier than it looks right now. The thing is with LeBron, he's gotten worse. He Mm -hmm. has, you know, and, He's not a guy that can carry you just out of his sheer will now. Like he's going to have to himself make a adjustment into this next stage, not only as a player, but as a role in an organization, because you're going to have to function as a team. Like it can't just be his show and him figuring it out. If he makes some mistakes in terms of personnel, like you, to, they're going to have the ball. Yeah. They're going to have to build a good team around him too. That makes sense with him. And listen, he can't get to Cleveland and start talking about how they're going to trade Mobley for, like who's, who, who's one of his buddies uh floating around um draymond draymond yeah <laughs> like I'm, they'll trade uh they'll trade mobley for draymond uh, like that sharpen will start immediately and that's why like i know some Cavs fans who don't want him back they don't want that whole experience and i understand that even if you do have a pretty good chance if you get lebron right now of winning a championship next year they want to do their own thing and i understand that if people don't want it i, I understand that Really, um, really quickly before we wrap it up a little bit, um, what are your general thoughts on the MLB lockout? Oh, it's shameful. And it's just more lost momentum for the sport. And I love it. I always will. And I'll always sit down and watch a baseball game. I'll always go to even like a minor league game. I think I could see myself doing that this spring because I just love the game. But there's so many people that don't. There's so many people that need something more and the MLB is not giving it to people and they're going to lose more and more fans. They're going to probably have a lot more issues like this over money uh, off some owners who are trying to make a profit in this more than compete and be on the cutting edge of things. Cause it's, it's almost like an old oil company or something like it's just pumped out so much money for these families and these ownership groups over the years that that's what they expect. And if it starts slipping, there's going to be more butting heads with players who I think in their own right have kind of been pampered, I'd say, compared to other athletes in other leagues. I mean, they've had the most money, the most guaranteed contracts. So I think there's a unwillingness for them to waver a little bit too here, especially on competitive issues like pitch clocks Mm -hmm. and changes that need to be made to the game itself. I remember where T's... Yeah, I remember Ortiz at spring training, like in one of his last years, was like, you'll never you'll never speed the game up. It's just the way it is. You know, they're never going to do anything. He was swearing. And listen, like the baseball players, they're very stubborn on this stuff. Like they do not want to be told what to do. And they've always been very powerful with the union there. And like, you know, I'm a labor players guy on this stuff. But at the same time, I think the owners got a point here in their own right of saying, we got to change some things up here from a – competitive standpoint um i think there's a lot of really interesting issues here if you care about mlb like um the floor a lot of teams tanking that has just killed the sport 
in recent years, you have these teams that just stink and can't muster any competition. And it's done on purpose to cut costs. And obviously you get draft picks out of it and everything else that can eventually get you back to the top. That's what the Astros did to get good. That's what the Marlins were trying to do, but it didn't really work. Rays do a good job with that. Uh, There's just a lot of like small market, low cost teams that don't go all in on spending the money and doing what they need to do. There's marketing issues with the sport. Um, I think like they're inching in the right direction on that stuff. Like the Red Sox had a really exciting, like personable team last year that the city really got into. Um, You know, the place was packed. They were letting people in on cheap tickets for the playoffs. And so it had like a very college feel to the crowd there and it was electric. And now boom, like slam on the brakes. The sport's not happening for who knows how long here. And guess what? People aren't going to care. Like they just, no one cares that this is going on right now. And that is the worst thing possible for them because it's going to be tough to get people back. That happened in the nineties with the strike. It was tough to get people back. And now you don't have the home run chase. You don't have steroids. You don't have these big personalities like Barry Bonds, A-Rod and Ortiz and everyone else. That's some great players. I think there's a lot of players that could be marketed better and would be very popular. Yeah. So, man, it's just sad, right? Because we both love the game. Mm -hmm. We know there's potential there. We know there's very easy fixes. Mm -hmm. And they're just all unwilling to compromise on it. And this is the greatest example. They're going to miss April over some nonsense. I All I wanted to do was watch Max Scherzer pitch for for the Mets um, come – March 31st and now it looks like that's going to be pushed back to well probably the end of April at least also one thing that um someone I forgot I was watching something that brought up that got brought up too um there's a risk of Jackie Robinson day not happening and the reason why that's extremely important this year is because it would be the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's um first game in the major league base in major league baseball so for them to like, like, I'm not saying like, that's the most, in, well, it is very, very important, but it's just like an added uh, slap in the face to baseball fans who like, I love when they have Jackie Robinson day and everyone's wearing 42 and you can't tell who's who, but it's all, you know, is they're wearing 42. And the reason why I'm confused today is because they're honoring one of the best baseball players and one of the most impactful Americans of all time. And the fact that that's not going to happen on the 75th anniversary says a lot to me as well. Mm-hmm. And you know what else says a lot when it comes to Jackie Robinson? Howard Bryant said this the other day. He called baseball boring. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I cannot watch a baseball game. It's fun to play. I'm not watching that. <laughs> and that was years like what? When was Jackie Robinson alive? The 60s? Uh, and it's it was quicker then. It definitely mm-hmm. was. Now, four hours. Yeah. Four and a half hours for a playoff Five game. That's that's a lot. That's, no that's, one. That's an ask. No one can do that. No one. The diehards, and they're so few and far in between these days. So we have this last segment here where it's time for you to speak your piece, and I'll basically give you a minute to promote or say whatever you want. So your minute starts now. All right, we're on bostonsportsjournal.com, clnsmedia.com, Celtics All Access on YouTube. We do great stand-ups after every game segments. We got Dome Theory, the podcast, a lot more, I'd say, topical, um, timely things we talk about on there rather than the Celtics week in and week out. But we do some Celtics shows, too, on there, mostly talking about other teams from other angles. So go get that on Spotify, iTunes, 
And uh, I read at Celticsblog.com as well and at Real Bob Manning on Twitter. That should be it. All righty. Um, still got to talk about Saba, but um, maybe in a we'll future. We'll do that soon. Maybe on Dome Theory. We're trying to get a uh, – I think we'll get a, like a weekly group chat from our group chat going on Dome Theory. I'd love to start doing that with the whole crew there. So stay tuned for that. And uh, more on that show. We'll try, we're going to try to do a lot of experimental stuff over there, which is going to be fun this year. I'm excited to watch it all happen and be a part of some of it too. Um, once again, you can check out Dome Theory on Spotify and iTunes, as Bobby Manning said. Uh, you can also connect with Bobby Manning on Instagram and Twitter. All the links to the description will be found. All the links to what I just said and all the things that Bobby Manning just plugged will be available in the description and also on oldmilk.co. Uh, thank you for watching and listening. This has been It's All Opinion Podcast, episode five. That's Bobby Manning over there. Uh, like and subscribe. Don't forget to follow Old Milk on Instagram and Twitter at Old Milk Media. And once again, stay safe and wash your hands just to make sure that you're clean. And I will see you next time. Thank you for listening and watching.